0: In your Bibles I'd like you to turn to the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to be, I know we're in Proverbs, I haven't lost it, 1 Samuel chapter 25, we're going to be reading a very interesting story over here that you might never have heard before, but what we're looking at this morning is who are we as men and women before God? Are we wise men? Are we wise women of God? And what does it look like when someone is unwise? Just in case we can recognize some of the characteristics in ourselves. And so it's always good to put God's word before us and examples of good and bad and then to evaluate our own lives. And so 1 Samuel 25 and then we'll get into a section in the book of Proverbs. 1 Samuel 25. We're going to read the whole chapter. Samuel the prophet died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David, that's the one who would be king later, King David. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Now, if you know the wilderness in Israel, there's nothing much there except rocks. So you need to survive, and so that's the background to this. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time you were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. If you look at the way his argument goes there, it's a very Eastern way of doing things. You don't come straight and say, give me food. You always say, you've got this, you've got that, I see it's a feast day, everyone's well, yes, now, please, could I perhaps have? That's the Eastern way of doing things. So when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 men remained with the baggage. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by day and night, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. I like that little comment by the servant. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seers of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And then she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. Clever. But she did not tell her husband Nabal, also clever. And she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain. Behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met with, with them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning... I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. I love this, doesn't it? So good, wife covering for her husband. I know. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with it. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Let's quote something. And now let this pres- this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience, for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. She knows what's coming on Nabal. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male." Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. Yes, that makes sense. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. Now the medical people will tell us he had a full stroke. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged The insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. He doesn't waste time, by the way. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And then for good or worse, David went and took some more women at that stage. Now that's the way it works in the east, all right. It's not the way it works in the west, but we'll come to that. And then just turn to Proverbs 24, two verses over there for us, just to focus round. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 13 to 14. My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such, like honey, to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. So what does Proverbs have to teach you and me, men and women, about being men and women of wisdom? You see, when you, have this, when you have a superficial reading of Proverbs, as we've been going through, it has a lot of advice to young men. And so you might be sitting as a woman, or as an older man, and you might say, okay, so what has it got to say to me? I'm not a young man. Well, just listen because it's speaking to you at the same time. You see, superficially, the advice is to young men because that's who the book was addressed to. Every book has its context, but we learn from the principles in those books, all right? And so, to young men, the Proverbs writes about the wis- on choosing wisdom, on life, on how to work, on choosing your life's partner. And at first glance, uh, Proverbs seem to have this fairly cynical attitude towards marriage. And I'll give you a few examples a bit later. And it seems to highlight the dangers of marriage more than its delights. But that's a superficial reading. You see, this book was written to young men who had not yet married. And it urges young men and young women to consider their life's partner carefully because the consequences of a wrong choice are both painful and permanent. You see, Proverbs, as an Old Testament book, makes no provision for divorce at all. all. Jesus elaborates in the New Testament and casts some light. And because we are sinful people, He says what He means by that. But Proverbs makes no provision for divorce. Marriage is viewed as a divine institution because... It is God who gives a man a virtuous wife. And so if you're a wife here, praise the Lord for you. If you're a woman here, praise the Lord for you. And if you're a man here, lest you be left out, praise the Lord for you too. Because God makes us who we are. But young men are therefore urged to look for a wife of good character, a wife of good wisdom. So does Proverbs then have nothing to say to the unmarried? Well, that's also a wrong deduction. You see, Proverbs comments at length and in great detail about the character character traits we are to look for in not just other people, but in us. The characteristics to be found in a man of godly wisdom or a woman of godly wisdom. What are these character traits that we are to look for in our own lives? Before we get there, we just need to look a little bit at the difference be- between personality and character. Now, I'm, I'm very careful here. I'm not going to great psychological depth, but very on the surface, what's personality? Personality is who I project myself to be, my identity and that mask I put on, the person I want others to know me as. So I might be funny, I might be extroverted, I might be energetic, I might be optimistic, I might be confident, or we're experts at recognising these things, by the way. I could also be overly serious. I could perhaps be lazy, negative, shy. Those are also things I predict. Thank you, Colin. You see, personality is something I can quite easily change to suit the situation. We've even got expressions for that. I must put on my party face. That doesn't just mean your makeup, ladies. It means that personality. Or, you're coming to church, I must put on my church face. I hope not. But that's talking about your personality. What's character? Well, character is more who I am inside, it's the real me, the one that's harder to change. It's the real me based on moral values, whether I recognize those moral values or not. And the Bible teaches us that only God can change my character. And He does that when He gives me new life. And I know there's a lot more to do with character here, but in the main, God changes my character when I become a human being. That doesn't mean I suddenly become a whole dramatically new person who doesn't like the things I liked before, or do the things I used to do, might be in some circumstances with some of the activities, but I'm still who I am, but God makes a new me. He changes that character, gives me new life. What does Proverbs say about personality and character? You see, many people today, many Christians, are more concerned about their personality than about their character. And yes, God is concerned with the, personal, with the personality we project, but He's more concerned with who I am as a person before Him, my character. And Proverbs would have us learn that our character is far more important than outward beauty or personality. That's what the Apostle Peter was teaching. 1 Peter 3, verse 3 to 4, he, say, he says this, Let not your adornment be external only, braiding the hair, Wearing gold jewellery, putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. That is what we have to aim for. Not the wearing of dresses. The personality, the character, which is molded by the Lord. That one who is gentle and quiet in spirit, precious in the sight of God. And so Proverbs urges us to be godly in our characters. Proverbs also teaches young men and women that a person who would marry well must choose their life's partner on the basis of their character, not on the basis of their looks or their personality. And I just wish young people would hear that today. We go for the guy with the muscles and the good looks, and then he turns out to be the opposite. You see, Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. Go look 30 years in 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 the mirror, and you'll see beauty is vain. I'm speaking about myself, by the way, none of you. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. That's what we look for. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to be in this topic. Today I'm going to be looking at wise and unwise men and women, and what that looks like. Next week, Lord willing, if he hasn't come yet, we'll look at the man, the Proverbs man, and what that looks like, and lies that men believe. And then the week following, again, if the Lord hasn't come by then, we will look at lies women believe, and who the Proverbs woman is. And I promise you, I'm not just going to be in Proverbs 31. Okay? So today we look at beauty and the beast. Who are we before the Lord as men and women? The story is told of a funeral of a man who was a drunk at his whole life. The man had died a drunk. He was a failure as a father. He was a miserable husband. Colin, you might have come across some of these at your funeral services. And everyone listening very intently to the words of the preacher, wondering what good he was going to say about this man. Was he going to lie about him? Because there was really nothing good about this guy. And to their surprise, the preacher leaned over the pulpit and the widow was sitting right in front of him and he said very quietly to her, My dear, don't make the same mistake twice. You see, many of the marriages in the Bible are less than ideal, aren't they? Look at Sarah in the Bible, Abraham's wife. She seemed quite cranky and even bossy at times and she didn't believe in God, but I don't blame her. It was quite hard what he was saying. You'll bear children at 80. Okay. What about Job's wife? Job offered a little comfort. Job's wife offered him very little comfort in the midst of his trials. When he's in the middle of all his trials, sitting on that ash heap, she sees God as the problem. And she says to Job, what did she say to him? Curse God and die. Well, thank you, but that wasn't the best of advice, my dear. But one of the most pathetic marriages is the one we've read about this morning of Abigail and Nabal. You see, Abigail was beautiful. And if the Bible says she was beautiful, she wasn't just pretty. She was beautiful. And she was wise. And Nabal, in contrast to her, was harsh and evil. And one wonders with our Western eyes on whatever attracted her to him. But the Eastern way didn't work like that. You got married to who you told to get married to. That's how it works. But as we look at Nabal's character, we see that he exhibits some of the characteristics of the fool of Proverbs. And so let's look a bit at Nabal. His name means fool, and he lived up to his name. He was a Calebite. Now, Calebite wasn't a bad thing. If you think back of Caleb, he was one of the good spies with Joshua. And so his followers were seen as good people. They were industrious, hardworking, and they were a positive thing for the nations, except for Nabal. He was the exception to the rule. He was a troublemaker. Look at the way he reacts when David's men come. Everyone knew who David was. Everyone knew that David was running away from King Saul who wanted to kill him. Everyone knew that David was going to be the next king of Israel because he had been Um, he had received God's blessing to be the next king. They knew that. But what does he say? He's an Israelite, so he would know. He sneers, Who's this David? Who's the son of Jesse? Servants are around all over the place running away from their masters. Why should I serve him? Why should I give him anything? So he's having a whole dig at David. And to David, that's life and death. David didn't have any logistical supply trucks in the background for his army. There was nothing. He, he was dependent on the people around in the countryside to give food for his armies. And there were 400 plus men running around in the desert with David. And they needed food. So this was life and death. This wasn't just to be taken lightly. And yet Nabal is harsh towards the men. And he's arrogant in his harshness. Maybe because he's so self-sufficient. He's a rich man. He doesn't need anyone. What I say goes, I am the boss. It's gone to his head. And he's really badly behaved. Even the servant says, he rails. He railed at David's men. And that's, that's a harsh shouting at him. And then the servant's own interpretation of his master. He's a worthless and a headstrong fellow. Now that would have got him the you're fired label, right? But he risks that in front of Abigail. Because that's who Nabal is. And then she comes home in verse 36 and there he is in the face of danger having a good old party drunk as a skunk not knowing if he's Arthur or Martha. That's Nabal, not a good guy. And then Abigail in contrast to him. She's the the discerning one. She's the one who stops David from taking vengeance and from sinning. So what was David going to sin about if he killed? People got killed in the Old Testament. Well, there was a specific sin of blood guilt. And that is from Deuteronomy 32 verse 35, where the Lord said, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave it to me. Don't you take the law into your own hands. I am God. And when you look at the whole story of what happens, you can see that when David leaves things, the Lord takes vengeance on David's sake. But Abigail, she's the one who discerns what's happening, the real situation. She's decisive. Her life's in danger and all her servants, and so she takes action. This is not a a quiet woman who sits in the background whimpering. This is a woman who takes decisive action. She gets the stores together. She organizes her servants. She says, get on on donkeys, go. Go ahead of me. Because she knew what armies were like and men with hot tempers. They were just killed. First thing that comes in their way. And David wasn't in a good mood. Strap on your swords, men. It's our time to ride. He's out to get vengeance. She sends her servants ahead with the provisions. She comes under cover, I don't know if you noticed that, of the ridge. She knew how the countryside worked. She knew where to take cover. She knew that David was on the wall park. And so she took every single precaution she could until she could get so close to David that she could actually speak to him without getting killed. That's how angry he was. And so she's competent. She's humble when she comes before David. She kneels at his feet. And she knows when humility is needed to save her life. She's a believer in Yahweh. Look at the way she uses the term, my, my Lord's Lord." And if you look in your Bible, it's got capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's speaking God's unsaying, you don't say the name of Yahweh if you're an Israelite. And so she was a believer in this God. And she's just, she realized her husband was going to get it. And so she says, may justice come upon my husband. So that's who Abigail is. So there we have a, a picture of an Someone who's unwise before the Lord and someone who's wise. Well, you say, coming back to Proverbs, for the unfortunate enough to have married a fool like Nabal, what does Proverbs say to us? Now I say us, not because I'm talking about me. You see, the assumption through the book of Proverbs is that a person must live with his or her partner, whether that choice of marriage partner is a mistake or not. And so the book of Proverbs says, beware, do not enter into marriage casually. Give serious consideration to the consequences of your decision. And when Proverbs speaks about about marriage and um, choosing marriage partners here, it's speaking out a man's choice of a life's partner, which can be a blessing. And it is a blessing. Proverbs 19.14 says, House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord." Men, if you're married to a woman, she's from the Lord. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains a favor from the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Thank the Lord for your wife. However, there's also potential for extreme unhappiness if we choose a a marriage partner who's wrong. Here's some interesting verses from Proverbs. You might not have seen these before. It's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and a vexing woman. Oh dear ladies. I'm sorry, there is some of this as well. I'll read the other two as well. Please, no stoning. It's not me, it's the Bible. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain. We know what those are. And a contentious wife are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. That's impossible. An excellent wife is the crown of a husband. But she who shames him is as rottenness in his bones. All right. So many of us have already entered into a commitment of marriage. What does the Bible say to us? And I will gladly marry my wife here. And my mother in law is here. She can tell my wife I've said this. I would gladly marry her again if I had to do so. Just want to make sure that goes out. But for those of us who are married, what does Proverbs have to teach us since we've already made our choice? You see, while we can't retrace our steps and start again, we can certainly strive to become the kind of spouse who Proverbs holds before us as the biblical ideal. What does that look like? What does it look like to be a good and wise friend? And we're going to look at a good and wise friend now because that summarizes who we are to be before the Lord, as spouses and as individuals before the Lord. You see, you might not have realized this yet if you're married, but the one you're married to should be your best friend. And that's why the breaking of a marriage covenant is a sin against a close and intimate companion. It's not just that woman or that man. They are to be your close and intimate your wise friend. And that's why Proverbs describes the adulteress as one who leaves the companion of her youth. Her close friend is a literal translation there. She leaves her close friend and forgets the covenant of her God. And the Bible repeatedly uses that phrase for companion, the words close friend. And so the, the, the term that's used here, close friend, is found elsewhere. If you look at Proverbs sixteen verse twenty eight, let's just turn there very quickly. Proverbs sixteen twenty eight, this is what it says. A dishonest man spreads strife, but a whisperer separates companions, close friends. There's the phrase again. And then in chapter seventeen, verse nine, same term. Whoever covers an an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates companions, close friends. There it is again. And so, if your spouse is not your friend, then I, I ask you this morning, what is she? If your husband isn't your best friend, who is he? Someone who just lives there with you. So what are the qualities of a good friend? And as I said before, this applies to all of us. Whether you're married or unmarried, if you're male or female... This applies to you. What does a wise friend look like? Firstly, in the six points, I'll be in here very quickly, but please go with me. A good friend is faithful. A good friend is faithful. Proverbs says, Fair weather friends are numerous. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. That's Proverbs. Or, A friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. So what are your friends like? Are they faithful? When the going gets tough, do your friends stick around? Or do they disappear? That will tell you if they are real friends. In marriages, when the going gets tough, does your real friend disappear? Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You see, in marriage... Those good friends must be faithful to the Lord too. In your marriage, your good friend must be faithful to the Lord. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is the reason. Because you've got to stick together. And you've got to be working together from the same perspective. And so you can't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And so the comment I often hear when a believer wants to marry an unbeliever, but it's alright, I'll bring them to the Lord. You won't. Unless the Lord is merciful, they will drag you down. And very soon you'll see you don't go to church anymore, you stop reading your Bible, you stop having a prayer life, Jesus fades out of your memory because you're in sin. Please hear my warning. What about if you're already married and your spouse is an unbeliever? What then? Then, says Proverbs, be a wise friend to your spouse. Be a wise friend to your spouse. Continue to faithfully bring them before the Lord in prayer. Pray for them. Plead for their salvation. Be faithful in your service to them because you serve Christ. Be a faithful servant to him. Be a wise friend to your spouse. Secondly, a good friend rebukes us when necessary. There are things which may need to be said to a friend that are not easy to say, right? I've got a good friend and I know when I need things said to me, they get said in very plain words I can understand. You see, sentimentalism seems to have pervaded our friendships on Facebook and wherever they are. And so it's very hard for us to rebuke friends when we need to. Rather, we flatter them. A true friend is one who is honest enough to tell us what we need to hear rather than flatter us. Proverbs says, a man who flatters his neighbor, take note, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. You're bringing that person down to destruction. You're putting an obstacle in their way, in the way of life. You're spreading a net before them if you flatter. Here's another one, Proverbs 27, 5-6. Better is an open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I know which I would rather want. The bit of pain in hearing the truth that I need to hear. Than someone who flatters me and I don't know where I stand. And why is it then that in marriages, and I'll speak specifically to us in marriages, why is it then that we sometimes think that the wife shouldn't criticize her husband? Where do we get this notion from? Where do we get the notion from that a husband shouldn't criticize his wife? She's going to get hurt. Or he's going to get hurt. You see, is it not better to be corrected by my closest friend than by an enemy? And sometimes the kindest thing a wife can do for a husband is to tell him that maybe this latest idea of his is ridiculous. But just do it more graciously than that. I know I've needed to hear that. Because I'm a man with a lot of ideas. But what happens when you get off track spiritually? Do you have friends around you who will draw you back to the Lord? Who will speak the hard words that need to get spoken because they are your friend? The ones who will put their hands around your shoulder and say, I'm concerned about you, because I see this and that and this. And is that really what the Lord would have us do? Is this the type of spouse that I am to my wife? Is this the type of wife that I have as my spouse? The one who will speak to me as my best friend. Thirdly, a good friend, according to Proverbs, is thoughtful and tactful. You see, a good friend is sensitive to our needs and they speak in such a way that it encourages and enriches us. A good friend knows when we're going through a bad day and they know that that's maybe not the best time to bring those jokes that aren't going to make much sense to us. They know when we're going through hard times, when we need encouragement, when jocularity is maybe not what should be the order of the day. They know that It's not only what we say, but how we say things, when we say things, and why we say things that are important. And so, no, it's not good to be rude all the time, because that's not what a faithful friend is. Proverbs says it in an interesting way. Proverbs 25.20. This is what it says. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, now we all know what that is like lately, right? Right? In the middle of winter, take off everything. and No, don't. Just think about taking off everything and standing in the middle of a cold day. All right? It's a bit like vinegar on soda. Now, if you know the reactive components of vinegar and soda, you put vinegar on soda and it goes all over the place. So, a bit like that is, he who sings songs to a troubled heart, says Proverbs. So, know the time and place. Don't sing songs to a troubled heart. Encouraged rather. Know the time and place. This is another interesting way of saying it. Proverbs twenty-seven fourteen. He who blesses his friend, now think of this neighbor, alright? He who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. Now if you know Dave Testard, he doesn't like to get up early. So don't go and say, Good morning, Dave! Very early in the morning because you're going to get grump in return. I know I've done it. I'm the fool. So that's thirdly. A good friend is thoughtful and tactful. Fourthly, a good friend, according to Proverbs, sharpens us. A good friend doesn't only criticise when necessary, but sometimes a good friend helps us to probe and to stretch our thinking too. A good friend... Doesn't allow us to become intellectually stagnant, but prods us onto higher and greater thoughts, not just in God's word, but in general. This is what Proverbs 27 17 says. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And that woman too, eh? Sometimes I think women have sharper blades than men, but anyway, that's a different thing. Second statement, listen to this Proverbs twenty, verse five. This is an interesting one. A plan in the heart of a man is like a deep water, like a well. But a man of understanding draws it out. Are you a good friend who knows how to draw out a good plan from your friend? Are you a husband who knows how to draw a good plan out of your wife? Are you a wife who knows how to encourage your husband in such a way that these amazing things can come out of them? That's what Proverbs says to us. Be that spouse be that friend who sharpens. So my question to you is, do your friends, does your husband, does your wife, do they sharpen you or dumb you down? Do we do things together which stimulate each other to think wider, higher, deeper thoughts? Or do we get into the rut and routine of marriage and there we go, same old thing every day. Let's sharpen each other. Let's get some vigour back into our lives. And encourage each other. Fifthly, before I go away there, you know one of the things which draws couples away from each other is suddenly this excitement that beckons on the horizon from someone else because their own relationships are dull. I'll leave that thought with you. Fifthly, a good friend offers us wise counsel. So those whom we choose as friends should be marked by wisdom and have godly counsel to offer. That's what Proverbs says to us. This is what it says. Proverbs 27 verse 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad. That's in the Eastern context, by the way. Might not do much for you as a Western man, but... Oil and perfume make the heart glad. So a man's counsel is is sweet to his friend. Just think back of David and Abigail and Nabal. See, David was angry. He was going to sin before the Lord. He was going to wipe out every male in the house of Nabal, he was going to take captive those women. And atrocious things happened to women in war. But Abigail quickly formulates a plan and she appeases David's anger and she speaks wise words of counsel to him. She's a wise woman before the Lord. And she keeps another from sinning. And then David indicates his appreciation in these words to her. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me and blessed me and blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Do you have friends who keep you from sin? That's what the Lord says. And then lastly, verse the sixth point, a good or a wise friend is like Jesus. Jesus. What do I mean by that? You see, for Christians, Jesus has many names in Scripture. We've got King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the Son of God, Emmanuel. But the one we sometimes forget is friend. Jesus is my friend. What do I mean by that? He's not just my pal, friend. Jesus has to be my Lord and my Saviour to be the friend of sinners. He has to be my Lord and my Saviour. And that's where you need to hear the Gospel. If you do not yet know Jesus Christ, He can be your friend in this way too. If you're a wise man or wise woman, listen to the words of Jesus and come to Him and bow to Him and look to His example. But Jesus as believers is also to be our perfect example of friendship. If you were to list all the good qualities of the best friend that you know and make a list there, the qualities Jesus has should be more than those. Jesus was loyal. He was brave. He was humble. He was honest. He was compassionate. He was protective. He was encouraging. He was dependable. He was faithful. He was kind. He was loving. He was forgiving. He was completely sacrificial. John's Gospel says it this way. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you, says God's word. And no longer know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And sometimes, you know, when we get the list of qualities that Jesus portrays to us, we say, well, I wish I could find more friends like that. But you know, the Lord doesn't say that to us. He says, how about you be that friend? How about you be the one who has those qualities? Because I will put those qualities in you through my spirit. I will make you to be like my son. And my son has all those qualities. You rather be you before me. And so be you before your friends. One who has Christ in you. If you look for those qualities in your friends, they will fail you every time. And so you give yourself to others because Christ freely gave Himself to you. He came to serve and not to be served. So should you. He did not try to get anything out of man, but instead He gave man His all. Maybe we should be doing that to our friends too and our spouses. Have this attitude in in you, says Philippians, which was also in Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearances of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Are you a faithful friend? Are you a wise man? Are you a wise woman of God? Have you surrounded yourselves with good and wise friends? Are you a wise spouse to your marriage partner? Do you point them to God and His wisdom? Or are you the stumbling block in the marriage? Are you the one who would lead them away from the godly lifestyle? Are you the one who makes the first excuses not to go to church today, dear? Are you the first one who doesn't watch the dubious behavior, the dubious material that you might watch together? Are you the first one who takes the lead in parenting in your home and perhaps not doing it the way God says? Taking the shortcuts. Do you lead away from God's wisdom? Or do you lead to God's wisdom? Are you a wise man and woman of God? I pray that the Lord will do His work in you and in me. So that we will be wise friends. To our spouses. To our friends. To our neighbours. And all those we come into contact with. Help us Lord. Is my prayer. Let's pray. Lord, Your Word tells us so much on how we are to live before You. Help us now in our ignorance, in our weakness. May we become wise before Your Word. May we take Your Word in. May we allow Your Spirit to make it part of who we are. May we drink and eat it in like sweet honey in the honeycomb because it will become good in us. And it will be converted in us into goodness which will be seen not just in our lives but in the lives of those we love, in the lives of our friends and in the lives of those we come into contact with. Make us wise men and women of God, those in whom Christ is seen. And then your message of the gospel will be spoken clearly and loudly from our lives. Do this in us we pray. Amen each other after that long message.